I'm Kate Northrup. And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Welcome back to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Mike. And this is Kate. Today, we have an interview that changed my mind on a topic that's on a lot of our minds, which is technology, specifically screen time and technology and social media for kids. Before I read Jordan's book, The New Childhood, Raising Kids to Thrive in a Connected World, I was very much on team delay technology as long as possible, delay social media for our kids as long as possible. You know, basically, it's bad. And this book changed my mind. And this conversation changed my mind even more. So I think you're going to love here if you have if you are somebody who has any guilt about the amount your kids are on screens, if you have confusion about it, if you don't know exactly how to navigate the world of screens and technology and social media with your kids or in schools, if you're a teacher or a caregiver of any kind, this is an incredibly important conversation to be having because our assumptions are not necessarily true. And Jordan questions a lot of them and backs it up with research. So why... So the audience can hear, which we hear talk more about this in the interview, but like what changed your mind... Well, I don't want to give that away because I feel like that's the point of this interview. Oh, okay. So I'm going to just read his bio uh, instead. Yeah, okay. Okay. No, um, I, no, <laughs> I know that, but okay. I know. It's like spoiler alert. Then what do they have to listen to the interview for? Well, there, because there's a lot of other valuable yeah, information. I'm going to keep it at All right, a, well, a, okay. a teaser. Okay. You got to so listen. People. Jordan Shapiro, PhD, is a globally celebrated American thought leader. He's currently senior fellow for the Joan Gans Cooney Center at Sesame Workshop and non-resident fellow in the Center for Universal Education at the Brookings Institution. His Forbes column on global education, learning through digital play, kids and culture was read by over 5 million people around the world. He's an international speaker and consultant whose fresh perspective combines psychology, philosophy, and economics in unexpected ways. And his new book, The New Childhood, Raising Kids to Thrive in a Connected World, is out now. He's a dad. He is in partnership with our friend Amanda Steinberg, founder of Daily Worth, who been on the has been on the before. podcast. She's the author of the book Worth, Worth, Worth it, it, Worth It, which was phenomenal. He also won a $10,000 grand prize on television's America's Funniest People when he was 13 years old. And you can watch the video, which we have not done yet, but we're getting ready to after this is over, about what his video was. He sang an original song called, What Part of the Pig Does the Hot Dog Come From? Which is pretty funny. Yes. In its title. <laughs> and uh, you can watch the link to that is on thejordansapiro.org. Yeah. So I Do guess that's... Ta- talk more about what we talked about in that episode? Well, we talked about technology and kids and what's yep. important to know and why it's not necessarily this scary thing to keep our kids away for as long as possible. We talked about our cultural obsession with productivity, where that comes from, how we can let go of it. I was very impressed that Jordan actually read my book, Do Less, to prepare for this interview. You'll hear how shocked I was by that factoid. And... We talked about the Wi-Fi and EF, EMFs and... 
kind of this new thing where we're going 5G, like do you hear a lot of the conversation around 5G networks and like phones and sickness and illness and kind of his thought on, he's not an expert, but he definitely like how he navigates the research that exists in the world. I feel like that was really important. Really important conversations around etiquette and how to teach our kids to be good humans. And also you'll hear him answer why he thinks it's important to get our kids on social media as early as possible, which is completely counter to the vast majority of the culture on what they believe. So I think you're going to love the episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Kate and Mike show, Jordan. Thanks. It's so great to be here. We're so happy to have you. So I have to be really honest. When I first sort of like got the whiff of the concept of your book, I was just like, I don't know. You know, I was very curmudgeonly (laughs) about the whole idea of embracing technology more with our children. Spoiler alert, as I have read your book, I'm convinced. So that's great. <laughs> oh, you should have acted like you weren't. We could have made I know. It. Sorry, I'm terrible at that. I can't, I can't lie. <laughs> um, but I actually do have questions because there are a few things that I still want to, you know, just know more about because I could be more convinced. But, <laughs> but, but basically, so we have a, just for context, we have a 16-month-old and an almost four-year-old. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. And we just came off like Kate was gone this weekend. And it was probably my hardest time I've ever had so far with two kids. Like just brutal. And it was so funny. I was documenting on Instagram stories and people would write back and I'm just like, it's like a day you just want to, I don't want to be a father today. Just want to check out and like, don't be here. Yeah. Yes. I remember those ages. Well, it's a lot of work and it's not, I mean, sometimes it's really fun and in, emphasis on the sum, not most. It's <laughs> a lot of work and they're so cute. They're so cute, but it's a lot of work. So that's a trick. You know, the cuteness, that's how they get you. No, it's a, it's a very smart evolutionary adaptation. Okay. It sounds like you wrote your book because you're a dad. That's that's true. I am a dad, yeah. (laughs) I mean, based on listening to your, you know, I love the stories that you tell about grappling with technology with your own children who are now how old? They are now 12 and 14. Okay, 12 and 14. So they were, I think, set, I think you talked about them being maybe like 10 and 12 in the book or nine. Yeah, I think 12. when I was writing the book, they were 10 and 12. When I first started doing all the research on kids and screens, they were four and six, though. Right. And it was right after you had gotten divorced. That's right. Yeah. And so there was this whole element of like guilt wrapped up with screen time and the whole transitional object piece. And so I would love for you to talk about why you wrote this book, not in the greater context of society, but why you wrote this book and why you're interested in it in in the context of your personal experience as a dad. Yeah. I mean, as you said, I was just recently divorced when I started doing the the work uh, that was the foundation of this book. And the The hard thing about that was, you know, I wanted to spend lots of time with my kids. They wanted to play video games. And and later, thinking a lot about it, that sort of started to make sense to me because, you know, when you're going through a divorce, especially as a kid, everything's chaotic. Nothing makes sense. Like the very, like, foundation, everything that's solid about your life is suddenly thrown up in arms. And it made sense to me that, that, you know, video games have things like consistent rules and uh, 
you know, and they're very predictable and you sort of get a power and you know how to use it and it always works the same way. And so you can imagine when you're like six years old and, and going through something where nothing is consistent, that it's really actually comforting to have this one place where you're empowered to behave in a consistent universe. So I started to play video games with my kids only because that's what they wanted to do. And I wanted to, you know, you know, I have a background in psychology, although I never practiced as a counselor or a therapist that I, I have a PhD in it. And so I, I sort of recognized that if we were going to be able to do any work together, and I mean like, you know, psychological work, therapeutic work, if I was going to be able to really support my kids, it had to be in a space where they felt super safe and super controlled. So I started to play video games with them. And that was where the book really came from, trying to figure that out, you know, understanding that their play space is so different than my play space. And so much of their life is play, than my play space was when I was their age. And so much of life for a kid is their play space. So I thought, well, how are they going to think differently, right? I, I never believed any of the sort of direct causal, oh, you know, video games will cause violence, video games, will, you know, that's just too oversimplifying everything when it becomes, you know, A equals B. But it's very clear that if you grow up spending most of your time doing something different than someone else, you're going to have a different way of thinking and a different way of behaving. And I wanted to kind of understand what that meant. And that was what got me doing the work for the larger society, but also for my own kids, because I wanted to say, you know, I need to understand understand something about where they're moving to think about how to, you know, be their Sherpa, right? Be their guide. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's so I have been of the school of thought that's more mainstream, which is let's keep our children away from technology for as long as possible. <laughs> I mean, really, like I was really just sort of took that as gospel. Like, obviously, I should not give my children technology until the last moment possible. <laughs> right. And I don't know if you have shared that same belief, Mike, but no. <laughs> I mean, I know my issues with technology, right? I'm very aware of those. And so I know how it affects me. And I think as we've watched Penelope, like what certain things have done to affect her. I mean, our, we had this great pediatrician just retired, but she was like, you know, with the screen time with kids within two years, like the first two years is be careful with eye development, et cetera. Her brain development, I don't really know what, the, <laughs> you can expand more to this, but she was just like, you know, just be careful around two years. And so just paying attention to that, but you have a, you have a different relationship with screens, like, oh, let's say TV or phones or like, you're not a big, you don't like to watch videos. I hate watching right? videos. <laughs> and, and Kate's a person that sits down to watch one show that's 30 minutes and then she turns it off. There's no binging in her life, right? So I'm it's impressed. A, yeah, it's a much healthier relationship. <laughs> I certainly have my issues with other things, just not TV. Yeah. But it's just like, so I have a binging problem, right? And I'm aware. So I think there is, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I don't, we haven't actually it's cool to listen to your stuff right now and like read your book and go through it because this isn't a conversation that we have really come across yet. No, because you know, our kids are so little. They're not playing video games at 14. Months. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. You no. know, and there, there's two things when I think about the really little ones, 
I mean, first, my kids didn't play. I, I don't know when they were. Probably four was when they first started to play video games. Um, I didn't completely shelter them from screens, although I wasn't super pro screen then. I mean, I was very, I was curating it a lot. I would show them like early black and white Mickey Mouse and Charlie Chaplin and was like, that was all they were, like nothing new, right? Maybe early Sesame Street, that was okay. It's very but, hip of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, there's just something so much, there, there's much smarter, edgier ideas going on in that, in that, you know, I think about this all the time, like Jim Henson was really edgy in the stuff he was doing and now the puppets are kind of like, you know, know, as safe as they can possibly be. And so I wanted to see the kids to see the edgy stuff. And I worked with that with them. But 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 for really little kids, this is as I've done more of this, I'm actually really worried about that sort of nothing before two year old rule only because it makes all these parents like terrified of it. And and I remember, as I was saying, I'm sorry to you guys. I remember how hard it was to have kids. I And I was scared of the screen time at that age. And do you know how many times like I would have the kid in the bathroom while I showered, like playing peekaboo beyond the shower curtain just so they didn't cry? I totally should have given them a video for 30 minutes. Like there's nothing's going to hurt them to have a video while you shower. If you're giving them videos all day long, this is not a binging, as you said, is not a great thing. And, and it's a very bad thing at young, a young age when you really need to be having all different kinds of interaction, but nothing bad is going to happen. If you go watch a video while I cook you dinner or watch a video while I shower. So I'm not too exhausted and dirty to play with you in an hour and angry and pissed off. I mean, I, I really worry about that advice and the fear that I hear from parents. All that being said, I think, you know, we really need to separate this question. Like every screens all just get put in this one bucket as if they're bad. And while we know for a fact, I mean, there's so much science around this about what little kids need to develop, you know, strong brains. I mean, everything about social skills and it's, it's a back and forth with their parents and it's eye contact. They call it serve and serve and return interactions is what the neuroscientists call it now. They need all of that stuff and they need that sort of, here's the ball. Do you want to play with the ball and everything they touch, you know, saying words around them so they hear that vocabulary and think about how to talk about it. Even adjectives are really big, right? Like the more you're describing things in detail, the more they're learning to pay attention to nuance and to, and to subtleties. But none of that, not none of that, all of that is always, no matter what, happening with some sort of object or tool or technology. A ball is a kind of technology. And so, again, I don't want kids staring at screens all day. What I want is kids working on screens with their parents while they're making eye contact and having conversations because those I want them to be nuanced and thoughtful and kind and intelligent and emotionally aware while using their screens. And the way they're going to learn that is those early interactions with parents and using it, which is, again, totally different than saying, hey, let's all go brain dead and binge watch YouTube. Right. right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so there were a couple of examples that really turned me around when I was reading in The New Childhood, when it made me realize that my way of thinking about like all technology is bad and let's put it off as long as possible, which is hugely ironic because Mike and I run, our entire business is online and we're on screens all day. So mm -hmm. it literally makes no sense that I would just- Most adults at this point, right? right. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like doing, we would not yeah. be able to live our life without no one can, well, there are certainly people in the world who are living their lives without screens. In our current like community, no one would be able to do their work and pay for their life without that. 
And so it didn't make any sense. But you gave a couple of examples and I'm happy to shoot you one to, you know, go further on. But I'm wondering, like, is there a good, is there a preferred or your favorite analogy of our thinking around the screens, like from a historical context, because you gave so many examples that we could relate to and be like, oh yeah, actually it doesn't make that much sense. Do you have a favorite one, whether it's the sandbox, kindergarten, time, you know, the, the, oh. the whatever. <laughs> they're all so good. I don't, I don't know. I have so many. I mean, the book sort of took shape when I discovered the sandbox book. And this was, I was in the, the library at Temple University where I, where I teach and I was looking through child development books and I found this tiny little book by G. Stanley Hall. G. Stanley Hall, people who know psychology, he's, he's huge. I mean, he, it, we don't talk about him much. He didn't have like big theories the way a Freud did, but he's actually the guy who brought Freud to America. Uh, you know, he was, the, he was the preeminent child psychologist at the time. And he wrote this little book called The Story of a Sandpile. It's not long. I, I actually, I don't have the book anymore, but I, I, it's small enough that I Xerox the whole thing just so I have my own copy, right? Uh, it's, it's like 60, 70 pages or something like that. And what it is, is sort of a case study because they had just brought sandboxes to America and to right outside Boston is where he was. And that's important already. I mean, I just glossed over it, but we tend to think of the sandbox as existing forever. No, it was a very early 20th, late 19th, early 20th century invention. And it was this thing. And when it happened, parents were outraged. They thought, oh my God, my kids just want to play in the sand all day. That can't be good for them. That can't be healthy for them. And G. Stanley Hall had to write this book to just try to convince people that giving kids an opportunity to have freedom in a play space was a good thing, right? That they didn't always have to be studying, that they didn't always have to be working, that they didn't always have to be doing things that seem productive. You see this, I was watching the, uh, what was it? The Diane Sawyer special about screen time a couple months ago. And one of the fathers in there is sitting at the with the kids and goes, well, when you look at a screen all day and play video games, what does that get you? Like, what do you have to show for at the end of the day? And I'm like, well, what do kids have to show for most things they do at the end of the day? <laughs> like, <laughs> what do adults have to show right? <laughs> right? for most of the things we do for fun? Right? Like that's not, productivity is not the, is not the, the end all be all of, of, of every activity you do in your life. But I think, you know, that's a fight that's been happening since the very beginning of the 20th century, probably since the very beginning of the industrial era, uh, this old notion of, you know, the Puritan notion that idle time is sin and work is the only thing that's holy. And the industrial era sort of at the same, one, making us work a lot harder than we used to and a lot more than we used to, but also making us have to fight over whether or not idle time is, is worthwhile. And so there, you can find the same argument that we have in education circles all the time right now, which is, oh, we need more recess. We need more playful learning. That's been going on since the very beginning of time. In fact, I, I once gave a talk where I said, you know, everyone says the factory model of education. I think the truth is that the, the 20th century education is characterized by the fight between things like testing and and playing and that's always been going on from the beginning wow mm. and and that's such a thing this is a, a bit of a tangent however i wrote a book called do less i know i read it oh really yes wow i was gonna come, <laughs> think i was gonna come and do the and do this podcast without first reading your book that'd be really irresponsible wouldn't it no <laughs> <laughs> i'm really impressed <laughs> 
would think maybe you he's know that, he's the academic he's got to do all the research yeah. that exists okay yeah. so i don't know if i would go that far but i figure you know i knew you were going to read my books and like courtesy to have a conversation you yeah, make sure nice. you read the other person's well it's greatly appreciated <laughs> and it's such a thing for adults to recover from that obsession with what do i have to show at yeah. the end of the day and so I, I do love that you brought that up as an example because it's something that, you know, like what do any of us have to show for at the end of our lives, right? Yeah. I mean, what is it that we're going for here anyway? So that's a larger question. Okay. Let's solve it right now. No. <laughs> Let's solve it. But we're all doing our part. It comes to screen time. That's where, where the answer is. So let's pretend we're talking to my dad. Who is um, very, because like I, because he's very, very traditional. He has a, I have a 17 year old half sister. She is a total gamer, really into Star Wars on her devices, Minecraft for a long time, on her devices all the time. And I know that it irritates the heck out of him, but like he, you know, A is, is tired and has sort of just let it go. (laughs) But I know he has a lot of guilt around that. So if you're, and I think he's a a bit of an extreme case, just generationally speaking, you know, he, I think they got a TV in his house when he was in high school, right? So if you were to talk to somebody like him, who's really staunchly like anti-screen, what would be some (laughs) of the things you might share with him that might open him up to like, you know what? this is not frying your daughter's brain. And actually like this could actually be part of an important developmental. I know that you're entirely yeah. about that, but if you just wanted to like cherry pick. Yeah, well, the, the, the first thing I, I would say that's sort of interesting is you say he's like staunchly against screens, but that sounds like his rhetoric is staunchly against screens and his actions with the 17 year old aren't at all. So, uh, you know, totally the, right. <laughs> so, so uh, th- those are, so, so, so it's mostly guilt. Um, and that was one it's of the most guilt. Exactly. Yeah, and, and, and shame. Yeah. Guilt and shame. And do you think that that's maybe the case for a lot of parents where it's inevitable that the screens are there anyway, but then it's like, oh God, I mean, it's something I talk about with my girlfriends a lot where, you know, stay at home moms are like, oh God, like, I feel like I'm letting my kid, you know, there's just so much guilt about it, even though it's happening anyway. Yeah. I mean, that was, that's one of the, one of the things that really, you know, there's so many things that made me want to write the book, but that was one was recognizing that you would read these studies or talk to parents and most parents, you know, my assumption is that I don't have the numbers to back this up, but that most kids have more screen time than we think and that most parents are more okay with it than we think, but that when it gets time to do the interviews or the studies that we save something that's very, very different. And what we really need is sort of permission for parents to, you know, for moms and dads when they're with other moms and dads, just say, hey, this is how much I do, I, my kids have and I'm okay with it because my kid does all these other things. I mean, people always ask me, you know, what's the right amount of screen time? And, and there, I did an interview in Italy recently and he spent like 40 minutes trying to just get me to give him a number. I'm like, I'm not going to give you a number. But the, my, my, my sort of stock answer is always, look, in my house, my kids know they're expected to read and they know they're expected to go outside and they know they're expected to like do something creative. And as long as they're doing all of those things, then if they can somehow fit 
eight hours of screen time in also, then I'm fine with that. I mean, there's not enough time in the day to do that, but it's more about what we expect, right? My kids get good grades. My kids read books. My kids play outside. My kids are athletic. My kids are socially, you know, face-to-face socially active as much as they are screen active. And my kids are total gamers that most kids would think play too much and most adults would think play too much and sit all day. But why would I care? right? Like if they're doing all the other things, why do I care if they do this one thing? And so I think that's what I would say to your father is, you know, if you have a kid who's delightful and intelligent and thoughtful, then if they decide to spend all day staring at Minecraft, and maybe you think that's a waste of time, that's fine. I did lots of things that my parents thought were a waste of time. In fact, most things that kids do look like a waste. We said this already, they look like a waste of time to adults. I don't want to have most of the conversations they want to have. My kids are 12 and 14. Most of their conversations, conversation is penis jokes. It's so annoying and like the first one's funny and then it goes on and on and on. And I'm like, it's not funny anymore. Right. (laughs) And it's also an element of like, you know, it's not under, I think, you know, you can expand on this, but like the lack of understanding, right? Like you'd be like, well, you're on Minecraft too much. was like, do I even know what's happening here? You know, like Second Life, what I did when my graduate program, we did a whole write up on Second Life. And that was the first time. I don't even know. Is that still around? I don't even know. I don't don't know, but I know exactly what you're talking about. I remember when everyone was talking about Second Life. Yeah, it was like in the beginning of like this, you're creating your avatar and then you're going to go build these communities. And one of the first online currencies, I think, too. Exactly. Yep. And so we did this graduate program on it. I was like, wow, this is cool. And that's what I don't even know if that's what Minecraft's about. But it's like, that's what I saw when I saw Waverly playing this game is like Kate's younger sister, where it's just like, she's building this world. And then there's like people she can connect with. And I was like, <laughs> so I feel like as a, as a parent myself, it's just like looking at me, oh, wow, they're playing, but what are they actually doing? You know, like, yeah. oh, we could just say they're playing video games, but like, what are they actually doing when they're in these video games? And, and all I know you video talk games about aren't this, the same. That's correct. Like I talk a lot about this in your book. What yeah, is- I, they're very, it's very, it's a, Minecraft's a great example because it's very creative. I sort of love the Minecraft story because it started as a game that had a very clear sort of set of objectives. And it was very, you know, that, that still exists. It's called survival mode where you have to try to survive before the creepers or the zombies, I, I forget what they're called, but they, they, until they come get you. And the kids kind of discovered there was something called creative mode where you could turn off the, uh, the sort of game and just build and build your own games. And they've all built their own, they build their own games. I mean, Roblox is the same thing. They're these two sort of games that are just ecosystems of kids building their own imaginary games. Sometimes adults building imaginary games for kids to play, but in this ecosystem, in this sort of, you know, metaverse or something, as opposed to a universe, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, which I find really, really fascinating. You know, they build hide and seek games. They build imaginary play. They build, and I talk about this a lot in the book, that if you think about, and there's a good argument to be made, I think, that we've gotten so overprotective of our kids, they can't go out and use the whole neighborhood the way they once could. When I was a kid, you know, we were out all day and our parents didn't know where we were and, and we were sometimes up to no good, but always in an imaginary game. And my kids, I'm sure, are, have just found a virtual place to do all of those things, which I, which I think is fine. You know, I, uh, I hope it doesn't replace all outdoor play. Like, absolutely, you need lots of outdoor play. But also, it's kind of cool that there's a safe or a reasonably safe virtual universe where they can play in a space that feels much bigger to them. I think that's so cool. I'm curious, you said regarding social media, right? Because social media is this whole other thing where it's like, 
wait until the last possible <laughs> second to allow your kids to do that. And the way you speak about it make is so makes so much sense, but very alternative to the commonly held belief that it's terrible and we should not let our kids be there. That it's this agora. And there are social conventions and we need to teach our kids, you know, how to act in those spaces. And so can you just talk about your philosophy on social media and the fact that you say as early as possible, which is completely counter to (laughs) almost everybody else. And so why do you say that? Why is that important to get your kids on social media as early as possible? Well, if you just think back to remember yourself at 13, 14, 15, right? Remember what was going on in your head. Remember both the like crazy sexual ideas you had and the crazy dealings you had to deal with status and the way people thought about looks and sex and all. Like, why would you hand someone social media at that moment? As this is going to be your first introduction, let's see what happens, right? Like, this yeah. is that seems like the worst possible moment to say, let me connect you to a world that's full of ghosts. scary people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 like basically saying I'm going to wait till you're 13, and then I'm going to and then I'm going to complain that you get confronted by these things, right? And so my argument has been: we need to make this happen sooner while parents are watching when they're younger. One way to think about it, if you, is just when my kids were well, you have a, you have a four year old, is that right? You said four year old. As you know, four-year-olds most of the time just want to do what mommy and daddy say. They want to be like, like, yeah, I want to be like you. And when you say you're supposed to say please, they try to say please. When I tell my 14-year-old he's supposed to say kind things, he goes, why? <laughs> right, right. So, so like we, we should be introducing them when they want to please the ad- adults. Yeah. And now that being said, social media is also scary and full of a lot of things. I, what I'm really advocating for is more closed social media experiences. I think it would be great if the examples I give in the books are like, why don't church groups have their own closed social media? Why don't sports teams have their own closed social media? Why don't large families? Like I think, uh, and the, you know, with my, my family's not huge, but it's not small either. And I think about how much my kids learn when they sit at like the Thanksgiving dinner table and they watch my older brothers and I sort of tease each other. And we do this sort of pro-social teasing where it's full of love. It's not anger. It's not bullying, but it's also sometimes relentless. And I don't know, like, how do you teach? How do you let them see that? And then they see us have political conversations. They see us disagree. They see how adults argue with both respect and love, but also passion and anger. They also see how you treat each other nicely. They see how you talk about the things, how you ask questions. We need to make them see that in a social media space too. So I think it'd be great if large families had it. I think because then I imagine, hey, you could share a a picture from Thanksgiving dinner and then you could all tease your brother's ugly shirt, right? But then they'd they'd see the way that's done, not in the way that really hurts people's feelings, but in a way that, that's playful and fun. You know, I, I'm one of those people who's not, compl- you know, I grew up with two brothers, so I'm certainly not against teasing. So I say it a lot, but I also think about how I'm so glad my kids get to watch us do that teasing because there's a lot of love in our family, even if we sometimes look like we're mean to each other. And what I don't think teenagers often and younger than teenagers often see is that kind of playful banter modeled for them in respectful ways. They only see that at holidays, I think. And I want them to see that on social media. But then also I want them to see the compliments. I want them to see what conversations look like when you're saying nice things, when you're supporting each other, right? There's tons of, especially among adults right now, tons of social media that's full of super supportive, thoughtful conversations about big issues. Well, we should be showing that to our kids before they become 13 and they're like, I don't want to hear anything you say because you're obviously a dumb adult, right? Exactly. 
Yeah, I think that's a pretty revolutionary idea. And, you know, I think about how that might, you know, apply to our family, right? We're about to go on this large family reunion where we haven't all gotten together as a family since Mike and I got married five years ago. And and now there's, you know, more kids and cousins, (laughs) different partners, you know, like all those people. And I think about how fun that could actually be mm-hmm. to create, whether it was a Facebook group or a, you know, I don't, I don't know, like a private Insta. I don't know how it would work. Like exactly. even Voxer, you know, just something. Yeah. As simple as, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or like even like Facebook we have as a family and with some close friends, we have a shared photo stream of photos of our kids because we don't post a ton of them on social media just because our business is public. And and it's so fun to go back and forth, but it, there's limitations in that particular. <laughs> no, it's just like an iCloud yeah. thing. What are some of the, just because I like details, like what are some other ideas for closed social media like that you would have other you, you, you know, I recently talked, I can't remember the name of it now, but I recently, a guy contacted me who's trying to build the tool for this. I don't, uh, for exactly this idea that you could, that you could build these things. The truth is it doesn't, it, there aren't good options for it yeah. yet. I mean, social, uh, there are Facebook groups, there are things like that. I mean, uh, Instagram is, is fine. Your kids can have a private account. The other thing is when they're little, when they're seven, when they're eight, when they're nine, they actually listen to you when you say, don't let anyone follow you without asking me, right? I can't say that to my 14. I mean, I do say it to my 14 year old, but I know he doesn't listen, right? I know, I know he's, there's a lot of things happening, but that's fine because I've actually spent seven years sort of going back and forth with him where he asked the question and I told him how to analyze it. He said, who's this person? And I, you know, I asked a lot, he would say, can I follow this person? And I go, well, who are they? How do you know them? You know, and they, so he saw me model that way of thinking that we want them to do over and over. And I do completely trust him at this point that he's not going to do anything dumb with that. So, so that's a, another piece of it, of what I'm saying. I'll tell you another thing. I was just on vacation with, with my children and I have started doing this for all of our trips is I really encourage them to do a lot of Instagramming on vacation. I kind of say, who's going to have the best Instagram post? And this is because the first time I ever took them somewhere, I was really sort of, and parents will talk about this all the time. I was sort of disturbed because they just want to stare at their phone the whole time. And at first I was like, this is terrible. I spent all this money and time planning this vacation so that you could see some something you've never seen and you just want to stare at something you could stare at at home. And then I realized that again, this is a, this is a comforting thing for them, right? Like it's actually really anxiety provoking to be so far away from home. And so that having this one piece of comfort is good. So what I needed to do is allow them to have that one piece of comfort while also encouraging them to look outward. And so what I did was really encourage them to use the phone as the sort of mediating device that they did to look around. So who can take better pictures of the mountains, who can find more interesting things to share with your friends through your phone, which put them both in the safe space of the telephone, but also with the ability to really look at the world around them and be present, right? We often think that that's the opposite of present. I mean, you see, like, you'll see people, I, I swim every day. That's one of the, that's what I do for exercise. And I'll go to the pool, especially in the summer. And I'll see that there'll be like these teenagers who spend much more time shooting the selfie before they get in the pool <laughs> than actually they've spent, like they could spend 25 minutes on the selfie and then like, and and then they spend like 10 minutes in the pool. And at first I was like, this is ridiculous. But then I realized like, this is how you tell your story now, right? You tell your, and we all have to tell a story, right? You know, we tend to be, you know, I remember when I first, my, my parents taking me on vacations when I was little and they'd be like, you should journal about everything you saw. Why was journaling good, but Instagram bad, right? But what both of them are is you take the being present in a space and figure out how do I want to tell the story about it so that it's meaningful for me, 
and so that I can meaningfully express that to someone else. And I don't think we should poo-poo the way that these kids want to do it. In fact, we should teach them how to do it with more nuance and with more thoughtfulness. And we should go, hey, and that's what I do with my kids. So they'll show me the pictures they take when we're somewhere. And I will, you know, sometimes I'm critical. And sometimes I'm the photography teacher. And sometimes I'm going, well, why would you take a picture of that instead of this? But all of that sort of not to, you know, I'm not criticizing their Instagram. I don't care whether you're good or bad at Instagram. I care whether or not you've really thoughtfully considered how you want to represent the moment, which is actually what we do and you know that's what therapy is all about psychotherapy you you teach people how to thoughtfully consider the moment and how to tell that story not differently necessarily i mean some therapists it's all about changing it but some therapist is just about teaching you how to do it with more thoughtful nuanced reflection and more precision and that's what i'm really trying to encourage my kids i don't tell them how to make sense of it i just encourage them to really be able to defend the sense they're making of their moments Mm -hmm. and how they're doing it which forces the critical thinking around it Exactly. So you're helping to shift their thinking as opposed to their actions, because the thinking they can take to any medium, because guaranteed they're going to be encountering a lot of different technologies. That's that's right. And this really terrifying thing is that we are so often putting digital technology and social media in the sort of off limits or, or negative space, right? We're calling it bad. We're acting, as we said at the beginning of this conversation, we're, we're acting like it's this like non-productive evil thing, which means kids are learning from their parents. That's not a thing where you're supposed to bring a mature critical thinking to, right? Yes. So mm-hmm. then of course, we're going to end up with our current state of Twitter, right? Like if we want to, not that we need to name any of our worst Twitter people in our society by name, but I'm sure some people can think of who they are. <laughs> but, you know, I think a perfect a, a way to explain that is whoever taught them right was there ever a grown-up who said hey this is what's an appropriate thing to tweet and here this is what's not no and actually in most cases they're getting lots of positive reinforcement that it must be a good thing to tweet because everybody talks about it we need to as parents go these are the good things these are the things that make me proud and these are the things that don't make me proud these are the things i don't approve of yeah just i remember i mean this is i went to etiquette classes growing up Like, which was very much as you spoke about (laughs) the Victorian idealism of the dinner table. Yeah. Um, But should we not be having, I don't know that etiquette would be the (laughs) word, but like, should we not be having those same guidelines for like, hey, just because you're not looking somebody in the eye does not mean they are not a human being. And so I think, you know, so much of the problem with what's going on on social media with conversations about hard topics is that we are saying things to people that we would never say to them if we were looking them in the eye. Um, And so what you're talking about is, is so critical. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's easy to sort of make, you know, it, these days it's easy to make fun of etiquette classes, but the, the etiquette classes are serve a really useful purpose. And we do teach a ton of etiquette, uh, even if we don't do it through classes. So much of what we do as parents is etiquette teaching, uh, mm-hmm. whether we want to ex- uh, believe that yeah. or not. Uh, an example I often think of is when my kids were your kids' ages, I would go to the playground with them and I would climb on the jungle gym with them and I would slide down the slide with them. But the amount of the time there that was spent going no hitting no don't call them names share right be kind right in a sandbox for example that's just me going nope we don't hit no use your words no say nice thing that's not a nice thing right but all of that is teaching all that's teaching etiquette right we think of it as oh no i'm just teaching them to be nice but that's the same thing you're teaching them the sort of social expectations around interacting with other people we don't do that at all in the digital space and then we blame the digital space no, it's a major, <laughs> it's a major error on our yeah. part. 
Yeah. No, well, you said something. There was a question, and this will kind of lead into, I'm going to change the topic. I mean, we're still going to be talking about digital space, but. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about cooking. Let's talk about what not. To use. I used to be a cook. I can talk about oh, cooking. Oh, that's right. I remember. <laughs> oh, I saw it on your website, but I wanted to bring it up and I forget what it was. It was some weird, not weird, but it was like a, the skill that was out of the blue. I'll, <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll get it before we end. But there was a question that was asked to you in this talk that I was listening to about what do you need in the world of AI and automation? Because especially right now, I mean, Andrew Yang, one of the guys running for president, is mm-hmm. talking a lot about AI right now. Artificial uh, intelligence, for those of you who might not be familiar with the acronym. Would you like to tell us like what artificial intelligence mm-hmm. is maybe in like a basic definition? <laughs> I mean, that's it's actually very complicated to get to say what artificial intelligence. So let me think about what the basic definition would be. I mean, it's not that it's that complicated as much as that there's different ways about thinking what it about what it does. I like to just say that AI is basically self-coding machines. That's like the definition I like to use because I think that takes some of the power out of our fear of them. So, or I'll use a video game example. Like one of the early AIs was an AI that could that could play Breakout. Remember that Atari game? Mm-hmm. Breakout, where you have the yep. paddle and you have to hit the ball as it gets rid of the different colored blocks. One of the earliest ones was AIs that they built was a computer that could beat Breakout faster and faster and faster, and by knowing exactly where to where to put the paddle. But all it's doing is it tries something and then it rewrites the algorithm. It tries something and then it rewrites its own its own algorithm. And so, what people are really afraid of right now is that AI, which is certainly happening in many many things is going to be able to replace millions of different jobs, right? And this is not robots necessarily, although that's another thing that that may replace jobs. But uh, think about the jobs that we often think of as highly skilled, whether that's a doctor or a lawyer, for example. I mean, a doctor is a sort of great one. So we are almost at the point where we have the capacity to sort of take a DNA sample or a blood sample or any kind of sample and scan it for a million different things. And then based on what it is, a computer can very quickly sort of take all of that data and go, what is the probability of what the illness is, right? And can come to a pretty good a pretty good guess. That's going to replace a ton of doctors in the long run because most of the things that we have are pretty minor, simple illnesses, right? Like we may have some bacterial infection. And what do you need a doctor to be diagnosing things that a computer can diagnose? You need a doctor to diagnose when it doesn't fit <laughs> the AI capable, <laughs> right? Uh, thing. So, so, you know, I think Andrew Yang, at least, and many others are getting to is that is, is actually it's not, you know, we tend to think it's all the low paying jobs that are that are going to get replaced. And, and, and actually, we've already replaced most of them. <laughs> right? It's actually the, ne- the, ne- the next the high tier, the formerly high esteemed jobs that are going to be not that the jobs will be replaced, but a lot of what gets done will be replaced. And we all already do this, you know, just think about what your email does. It already tells you which ones are worth reading first. Right. Like, right. and it's pretty accurate. Right. It's pretty, it's pretty good at it. It rarely, you know, there are times when we're like, Hey, that's a terrible mistake. I can't believe it picked the wrong one, but that's actually pretty rare out of your thousands of emails. Most of the time you're like, yeah, put the perfect one in the perfect box every time for me. Help in that department. And, it's, <laughs> and it's like, it's finishing your sentences now. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, yeah. Or at least it gives that option on all of yes. them. I rarely press it, but, <laughs> but it I gives know. me that option. I'm so freaked out by that. I just have to <laughs> I always just ignore it because I'm like, don't tell me what I want to say. Like, I'm so obsessed with words and what I choose that I'm just like, ah! (laughs) 
the non-author in but this community. But it's still cool. Like, it's it works great cool. for me. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think the, the, the point here to get this back to sort of kids or any of us and what that means is not so much the, the panic. I'm not nearly as panicked as most people about, you know, what they call the fourth, the World Economic Forum calls it the fourth industrial revolution with AI and automation and bioengineering that we're all going to become expendable. I'm not really worried about that. I think that, that if you look historically, you find a million times when people thought that they were sure. John Maynard Keynes, the famous economist, actually in like 1920 or something, wrote a, a paper called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren because he was sure that by 1960, we'd automate every job out of existence. And so what would be the purpose of your life? Right. And, you know, this is a, I don't even know if I have the date anywhere near right when I say 1920 or 1960. But that's you read it and you go, he was you saying all the same things. That. No one would know. <laughs> well, you know, someone might look it up. So I wanted to make sure I was like yeah, making up, making up the dates. Um, I didn't want them to be like, he's such an idiot. How could he not know the dates? No, I made them up. But still, it's very, it's, it's an entire different kind of economy. There's not even computers yet when he's starting to, mm. to, to say this and realize it's coming. So I'm not so worried about that. And I think to get to what you said, my answer to that question is usually what our kids need is the same thing they've always needed, which is the ability to think critically, the ability to live values, the ability to sort of manifest the things that matter in the way that they live their lives. You know, I don't mean manifest in the magic sense of, man, you know, if I set my intentions, I'll manifest, you know, wealth. I, I mean it much more in terms of, you know, we decide how we want to live and then you either live that way or you, or you don't. And teaching your kids to have the confidence and the ability to do that, I think matters much more. Now, the thing I'll add to that is not to say the technology doesn't matter because what I, what so much of my book is about is how that process has always been mediated through tools, right? We're humans, we use tools. And it's always about whether you can articulate who you are, your own identity, your own self, your own desires, your own intentions, your own, what, using tools that are around you or using the economy that's around you. You know, and a, an example I might give is you could be the greatest tapestry weaver, right? Like you might, you might be able to weave a tapestry where you can make my, you know, like, you know, art, like high art, like, you know, belongs in a museum. I'm gonna be like, oh my God, I can feel all your pain just looking at this tapestry. That skill's not gonna get you very far in the 21st century, right? I mean, it's still great. I don't wanna minimize the important, you know, it's, but most people, what they need to be able to do is what that tapestry weaver could do using more modern tools, the tools that shape our lives every day. And that's not because the tools that shape our lives are more advanced. It's just because they're different. I mean, I'm, maybe we should go back to a world of tapestry. It's probably not going to happen right. though. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. But I think to build off of that, I mean, your answer to that question in the event was very, it was just like kind of what you responded here, where I thought it kind of takes it back to how we feel with ourselves on these technology and these platforms and social media. And then we kind of take that to our kids. Yeah. What you ended up saying was how do you make sure that they have a meaningful sense of self in this connected world? And you yeah. said this a few times and I just really, I think it's to, it is to take, if I feel horrible going on Facebook every day, and then I'm going to tell my 14 year old kid to be like, stay off Facebook, you know, or whatever, <laughs> where it's like, that's my own projection on them because their experience could be much different. Yeah. And it could be much different. Right. And so I think with the, the piece of like, we kind of, as we're going through navigating these ourselves, I mean, my mom, like, I just think about my parents, right. They didn't have the internet when I, they were my age and to think about like my, we didn't have the Right. Yeah. No. My, when my parents were thirty-six years old, oh there was yeah, no, I see. Right. Yeah. No internet. But 
it's like they can choose to participate in this world because Kate and I are on social media. Like we're on Instagram. My mom doesn't have a picture up. She comments now. She comments? <laughs> yeah, she comments. Oh, she hasn't commented it's on it. It's because I called her out. Michelle. I'm looking for a comment. Yeah. yeah. And so it's just like, it's cool that they're kind of, it's just navigating the waters that we're in. It's not that they're on, she's not on Instagram constantly, right? You know, much far less than we are, but at least they're participating in this, this environment to be, because it is really right. And I, as I think we just found out, you know, many of the same old archetypal mother-in-law, daughter-in-law dynamics are still there. That's correct. <laughs> and they're not it's much not the different. Internet. It's on Instagram. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I have two questions for you. Okay. When I was listening to your book, I did listen to the audio. So that was fun. I really had two questions. One what are your feelings on the people who talk about like the dangers of Wi-Fi or electromagnetic field? And do you think that holds any water? Can you just speak to that? And then I have a second one sort of similar. <laughs> and the, and the, is it the 5G, the 6G, whatever, whatever the, yeah, the and all, yeah, the concern about the 5G, I've seen more about that. Yeah. What do you, yeah. what do you think? You know, I don't really have the, the scientific credentials to really evaluate that research. I also haven't read most of that research to evaluate it. You know, I tend to, I tend to, in general, when in, in everything that I do, I tend to go, hey, if it's this mixed, those who say it's causing it and those who say it's absolutely not causing it, then probably it's sort of neutral, right? Like we don't really know anything about it. And I, and that's kind of, and, and I don't just say that about something like this. I also say it in so many of the things in my book where I go, Hey, you can, t yes, I know people will show you studies saying this is happening with video games, but I can find equally amount of studies as saying the other things that that bad outcome is not a bad outcome. And so therefore I kind of assume it's just neutral or it needs more research and I'm not going to get involved in that issue until I, until that research is at least somewhat conclusive in the scientific community. And I think when it comes to the dangers of Wi-Fi and electromagnetic fields and 5G, that is absolutely not conclusive in the scientific community or consensually accepted, which is not, you know, I know there's people probably listening who have read some of it and go, well, that's because the Wi-Fi company, and that might be true. I'm not saying that's not true, that it's not a conspiracy of the, of, you know, Comcast and Verizon to, but so far the, the scientific community hasn't, hasn't backed that. And, and, and I don't like to get involved in things in, until we really know that there's some real background behind it. So all that being said, I will point out that pretty much at every technological transformational moment, there was some panic about how, uh, about how that technology was going to like hurt the brain. Um, yeah. The example, I think I give it in the book or I give it in lots of uh, interviews is I found articles by physicians at the, at the beginning of trains in newspapers saying, don't let your kids sit by the window on a train because the human brain can't process images that go by that quickly. And so they'll absolutely get brain damage if you let them near the window. And so they would even have like train cars with blacked out windows so that they were supposed to be where you took your kids because everyone was convinced. Wow. I, I think the brain is probably much more adaptable than we give it credit for. And that many of these things, while they may cause, may, they may have very clear impacts. And I won't be surprised if we find out there's very clear impact to the brain from things like uh, Wi-Fi signals. Uh, that's not always necessarily bad. You know, you know, yeah, we change based on the ways that we live our lives and the ways that we use our body. I just want to ask one, and you can yeah. Has in this research have they ever interviewed doctors? 
<laughs> you mean on the Wi-Fi kind of stuff? Yeah, like like. Oh yeah, yeah. There's certainly doctors. Yeah, there's certainly doctors who argue it very strongly. There's some doctors who are sure that that it, you know. There's some doctors that's all their research is about things like five G, and the, and there's people who argue Wi-Fi causes cancer, and those are often their medical professionals, uh, which is why I, I don't even want to say they're wrong. I just want to say yeah. they haven't been able to convince the majority of the medical community yet. Maybe they still will, because that's often the case is that there's one, I mean, uh, you know, Edward Jenner, uh, everyone thought he was crazy when he tried to stop smallpox with this weird thing called vaccination, <laughs> right? And eventually he turned out he, he was right. He, he did, we've pretty much eradicated, I think we have eradicated smallpox. I think it's the one thing that's been eradicated by humans. I have not heard of anyone having smallpox. Bill Gates would know because they were doing, I think there was like one small, I think it was in Afghanistan and I just heard Melinda and him talk. I think it's Afghanistan or Syria and they can't go in there and help them. Oh, and that's the only place where there's still smallpox. Yeah. There's like a couple cases of, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's but again, just my only point being that they were sure this guy was a, was a quack. And I, when it was, I think it's like 1890, Edward, Edward Jenner is doing the vaccination against smallpox. And they're all sure he's crazy because he's saying inject, let's take scrapings from, from, the, from the cows and inject it into, into people. Which is like creepy when you think about it. <laughs> oh, uh, like not just creepy. He didn't, he didn't have it and unethical because he didn't really have any evidence. Right. <laughs> I know, but there are a lot. I mean, and... I mean, I, I just, I appreciate your relative neutrality in your answer because the truth is we don't know. And I love that you answered that way. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think we all have to make these decisions for ourselves. Like for me personally, it feels right to me to like not keep my cell phone on my physical body as much Mm -hmm. as possible. It feels right to me to like not put my laptop literally on my lap because it makes me feel tweaked out. But that's like just a person, you know, yeah, I just, yeah. It's just because that's how my body feels. Yeah. And so well, that, that and and that's a great point. Is that whether we ever have evidence or not, you know, you know, that's a relative. Like even if a, what, what you have is some weird phobia that makes you think that the invisible waves are coming after you, like that's a relatively innocuous thing. So yeah. why would we tell you not to do it? Like right, who right. cares? Absolutely. <laughs> like, yeah, it's true. Like when you take a computer off your lap and you're like, oh, my legs are really hot. I don't like the sensation. How about I don't do that again? You know. It's just, Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. So if you could leave parents with one thought about screen time, social media technology that you want them to walk away with to know how to take really great care of their kids, what is that thought? (laughs) Digital technology is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. And maybe it was a mistake that we accepted it, but it's kind of too late to walk that one back. I think, I mean, you know, I could be wrong, but I'm, I bet most I can tell it looks like whether we like it or not, we're only going to get a lot more of it. And we're only going to get it. We're going to have it in our toasters soon in our refrigerators. And we're going to be charging just by dropping things on the table. I mean, it's, it's only going to be more and more. And in fact, we like a lot of it. I mean, I, as I often tell my students, you know, I, I'm certainly I really love air conditioning. You know, I really love indoor plumbing. There's some technology that like, let's not go with this whole like garden of Eden. Like I wish everything was simpler. I don't want to go back to like pre-toilet. Right. I'm, I'm fine. I, I like it a lot, <laughs> but, but I would say, you know, thinking about that, then the question becomes, 
how do we raise kids who know how to live with this in really positive ways so that they become positive adults? And that's always our question as adults. And I think if there's one thesis, I think I arrived at as I wrote the book and did all this research, it, it actually has very little to do with technology itself as much as just saying the job of adults or child rearing people, whether that's parents or caregivers or teachers or grandparents or, you know, whatever, the job has always been to go, how do we reach back into the past, find the things that are essential, find the things that matter to human civilization, and how do we reframe those things and reinvent those things so that they remain relevant, meaningful, and useful in changing contexts, whether that's a technological context, an economic context, a cultural context, right? But that's always what we're doing, right? That's always what we need to do. All the world's great religions have tons of great things they can offer us in terms of thinking about how to treat each other better. All the world's great philosophies have tons of things they can teach us about how to think about the world better. And what we need to do is reach back and go, hey, even though they're talking about it with the wrong language, that doesn't mean we can't reinvent it in ways that it becomes useful now. And as parents, caregivers, teachers, that's actually our job. And that's always been our job. Otherwise, we wouldn't even need it. We just go, hey, reinvent everything, right? In which right. case, what do you need parenting for? <laughs> yeah, just reinvent the wheel every day, kid, and see how you know. That's not what we do. We go, hey, I know some things that I learned that I need to make sure you take forward as you remake the world for your generation. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you because I think reading your book saved me from years of guilt and struggle <laughs> that I now see is unnecessary. And that's great because kids internalize that guilt, right? I mean, there was a Pew, there was a Pew study, uh, I think earlier this year, where I, I, and it was all over, of course, in my, in my feed, because I do this stuff where it said, you ask teenagers and 70% of them think they spend too much time on their phones. And I was like, yeah, and how many girls think they're overweight when they're teenagers, right? Like, just because we teaching them to have these terrible thoughts does not mean that it's right. Right. Our job is actually to teach them not to feel guilt and shame around their behaviors or their bodies. Amen. Amen <laughs> to that. So everyone listening, get yourself a copy of The New Childhood by Jordan Shapiro. And then Jordan, where should people follow your work if they want to know more? You can Facebook, of course, Twitter, of course, Instagram, of course. And then uh, you can always find my, me on my website, which is www.thenewchildhood.com. Yeah, www.newchildhood. Well, it's so hard to say that. You'd think we haven't been saying it for years, the www. <laughs> I'll just say thenewchildhood.com. Let's take out the www. Yeah, you don't have to say www anymore. I know. Why do you even have to type it anymore? You don't. You, oh. Ever? No. Oh. I never, <laughs> I never type www. Oh. Oh, Jordan and Kate. Welcome. Do you, oh wait, and I don't have to type HTTP. No, I never, I haven't typed that no, in years. <laughs> only when you're hyperlinking things in emails that you want to send out to your readers, of course. But besides that, yeah. Good to know. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a great conversation. Thank you for being here. So thenewchildhood.com without the WW. The best thing about this is, is this got me to be able to say the website like six times, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that anyone Definitely listening really is going to remember it. Definitely go there. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan, this is fun. <laughs> it was great. Thanks. It was such a pleasure to do this. Thank you. Are you thinking about making a big investment in your business in a mastermind or a high-level coaching program or some other big ticket item, but you feel unsure about 
whether or not it's going to be worth it, how to make the decision about if it's the right thing for you, and how to even plan for that investment. Well, Mike and I have seen a lot of new high-ticket offers in the online business and personal development space, and we're excited about that. And we also want you to have the tools to make the best decision for you so that this is an investment and not a waste of money. So we're offering a free masterclass. There's really not any pitch. It's just a public service about how to decide on and plan for making a big investment in your business. You can get it totally for free over at katenorthrup.com forward slash up level. And we're so excited to share with you three signs that you're ready to invest in a high level coaching or support for your business, a simple fail-proof three-step process for making the right decision about these investments every time, and the critical shift you need to make in your business finances to make the funds available to invest when the time is right. So if you are looking to make a big investment in your business and you wanna do it right, join us for the free masterclass, katenorthrop.com forward slash up level. See you there.